I'm Charlotte Pickles, editor of the Capitalism Theme here at Unheard. Since the political earthquakes of 2016, two words have dominated the news media. Brexit and Trump. But how much of that coverage has increased understanding? How much has built bridges? Not a lot. In fact, the media is more often than not adding to a sense of us versus them. In the latest Unheard documentary, Katie Harrison seeks to build a bridge over one of the biggest gulfs in understanding. It's the gap between Brits and Americans over Trump and the particularly stark gap between churchgoers in the two nations. Katie, an active Christian in England, seeks explanations for why America's Bible Belt voted for a president that most believers in Britain regard as embodying the very opposite of their values. Travel with her on a journey to meet Trump backers and Trump critics from the USA's Christian community and share what she learns. In November 2016, the election of US President Donald J. Trump took the world by surprise. Widely predicted to lose the election, his supporters turned out in force and won the day. And few groups turned out in greater force for the New York hotelier than American Christians. And white evangelicals in particular, 80% of them gave him their vote. Only 16% of them voted for Hillary Clinton. For those of us on the other side of the Atlantic, perhaps the white evangelical vote was one of the election's biggest surprises. Just five years earlier, in a poll, 30% of white US evangelicals agreed that an elected official who commits an immoral act in their personal life can still fulfill their public duties. By 2016, this figure had shifted to 72%, right at the time that a presidential candidate who bragged about assaulting women took centre stage. And that candidate won the white evangelical vote by a landslide. So what does it mean to be an evangelical Christian in America? I asked Amy Black, Professor of Political Science at the Evangelical Wheaton College. When we talk about evangelicals, at least in the US context, we're usually talking about people who are part of a theological and religious movement. And that movement has lots of social, cultural, and political implications. The first part, it's about conversionism, that there's an emphasis on a need for individual transformation, a personal decision to accept Jesus Christ. There's a, an emphasis on biblicism, that the Bible is the ultimate authority for life. The third would be crucicentrism. That's an emphasis on the cross, an emphasis on Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And then a fourth aspect is activism, the idea that you live out the gospel in both missionary and social reform efforts. So basically, this four-part definition, it's focused on belief, that's at the center of the definition, but it also has a behavioral component. In the USA, perhaps more than anywhere else in the world, 
the word evangelical doesn't just describe a set of theological beliefs. It's a cultural and political identity, a mass movement with highly influential leaders. But its emergence into public life is relatively recent. It's only a generation or so ago since phrases were picked from the Bible and used to promote separatism. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. In the world but not of the world. Worldliness was to be avoided at all costs. Hey, how are you? Nice to see you. I asked Tim Giegline, a vice president at Focus on the Family and former aide to George W. Bush, about the journey from separatism to political influence. Up to and including the mid-1970s, self-identified American evangelicals in very large numbers chose not to participate in American politics. You are in the world, you're not of the world. It's a dirty process, don't get involved. And what happened uh, in America is that in 1973, our Supreme Court um, uh, legalized and some would say imposed abortion in the Roe versus Wade decision. This, in large numbers, brought American evangelicals into the public square. You mentioned the shift in the 1970s around some big organisations and structures which mobilised Christians, particularly evangelicals, to engage. Um, are we seeing the heritage of some of those organisations and movements specifically today? Most definitely. Uh, I would say that it was the foresight, the information, the vision of many of these evangelicals in the 70s and 80s that have brought us to this point in American politics. Their goal was to wake up what they viewed as a sleeping, gigantic part of the American demographic, move them to the center right, to put on their radar scope the centrality of marriage, family, parenting, pro-life, religious liberty, conscience issues, and then in a phrase that was used very widely beginning in the 90s, to vote their values. This sleeping giant has certainly woken up. Not only did white evangelicals overwhelmingly vote for Trump, many of them continue to support him and they have their champions in the White House. Key cabinet posts, as well as informal advisory roles, have been filled by white evangelicals. As a result, this presidency is heavily influenced by them. But why? What's the story behind this unlikely alliance? From the UK, all we see is a philandering, boorish, insensitive president, fixated on his own ego and determined to make life difficult for minorities and vulnerable people. It's counterintuitive to expect people who believe in a loving God and a mission of mercy and compassion to support him, surely. What happened to the call in the Bible in Matthew 25 to treat vulnerable people, homeless, prisoners, those in extreme poverty, as though they were Jesus himself? And how can people who claim to hold to high moral standards of behaviour justify the way Trump treats women? I decided to go to Washington DC to find out for myself. I'm standing outside the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. There's a protest outside, and inside, hundreds of people are getting ready for a big Republican dinner. The president is on his way. Sean Spicer, former White House press spokesperson, is already in there. We're on our way in to see Ralph Reed, who leads the Faith and Freedom Coalition, to find out about his support for President Trump. Trump, to his credit, made a very full-throated appeal to these voters, he really leaned into these issues and asked for their support. Abortion's really important to those people. 
And of course, Hillary Clinton was the most socially liberal nominee of either party in, in my lifetime. I mean, she was endorsed by Planned Parenthood in the primaries. She was against any restrictions on abortion. So th- this was a big issue in the faith community. So I know that you're at a dinner this evening. You're expecting to see the president there. You've been quite vocal in your support for many of the things that he's said and done. Do you think God has put him in that position? Well, I have a fairly expansive uh, view of the sovereignty of God, as I'm sure you can imagine. You know, God uh, is sovereign in the affairs of humankind, and he governs the universe. But I believe that every ruler, every head of state, every person... In some sense, you know, God has either directed it or allowed it, you know, because I I believe he's God. You know, I would never claim to speak for God and say that he ordained this or that. I would just make the point that there was a fervency and there was an intensity in the Orthodox Christian community in the United States, Catholic and Protestant, that was desirous of a different kind of leadership. And they turned out in record numbers, and they made the difference. But some of the things that he's tweeted himself or said, you know, live on TV, he's clearly said himself. Some of those things have been seen to be quite perhaps harsh about the way that some women look or disparaging perhaps about some kinds of refugees. I'm interested in how you reconcile that with um, the calling in Scripture in Matthew 25 to treat dispossessed people as though they were Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. Where do you see that in this presidency? Well, the way I see it is, you know, I, I think in every case, I can show you policies that he has advocated based on compassion, based on biblical principles, based on a heart for everybody to rise as high and as far as their talents can carry them. Now, in terms of his political style and his rhetoric, my belief is that, um, you know, it is who he is. Does Donald Trump sometimes say and do things that I wish he wouldn't say or do? Yes, he does. That doesn't mean for one minute that his policies aren't designed to help everybody and that he doesn't have a compassionate heart. I know him personally, and I know that's where his heart is. Ralph Reed didn't really argue when we objected to Trump's character. He seems to have found a story that works for him. And while from our side of the Atlantic, that difference comes across as distasteful, to Mr Reed, it's refreshing. But his policy analysis was particularly interesting. He told me the president's plan to phase out a programme covering children and families who'd entered America illegally was compassionate. Right outside the hotel, as we were leaving, a group of young people were protesting this and other Trump policies. Um, So it says, uh, super callous, fragile, racist, sexist, Nazi protests. And this is my friend Ben. We're protesting Trump and basically everything he stands for and supporting our fellow immigrants and DACA dreamers and... Um, LGBTQ, um, African-Americans, basically everyone he hates or supporting here. It's quite a list, and the protesters link this list of hated groups to the influence of religious groups. My sign uh, stands for um, the separation of church and state, so instead of building the border wall, I am demanding that we build a stronger wall between church and state to ensure that our government 
does not enshrine any one particular religion, in fact doesn't enshrine any religion at all, to ensure that Americans of all religions or no religion are all equally represented under the law. Trump's presidency is only a year in, but it already provokes strong reactions all round. The Ralph Reeds see him as a champion of their values, while people like the protesters say he's throwing out everything they value. In the journey which we heard about earlier, to encourage Christians to get involved in public life and to champion social justice, some voices have been particularly influential. Well known around the world, the writing of activist Jim Wallace inspired many Christians to take an interest in politics. When the media says evangelicals, they really are talking about white evangelicals. Because if you count all the evangelicals who voted, uh, Hispanic evangelicals, black evangelicals, it was about split 50-50 between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. So most evangelicals of color and a lot of young white evangelicals voted against Donald Trump too. So if race wasn't a deal breaker for these white Christians that we're talking about, which were the deal breaker issues and why do you think they were considered to be more important than race? Well, that's a good question to ask them because black evangelicals haven't gotten an answer back yet about that. So it's caused this great racial divide that I haven't seen in any time since the civil rights movement. And most of the evangelicals of color uh, that I know who were against Donald Trump are also pro-life, but they would have a more consistent view of life where the lives of poor children after they're born are important to them too. And indeed, um, when we support low-income women and uh, with health care and nutrition, uh, it reduces the abortion rate. So if you're voting for someone who will support policies that really cut off support, which Donald Trump's policies do, they literally abandon poor families and children, the abortion rate is going to go up, not down. So even if you care about the abortion rate, which I do, if you want to reduce abortion, all the evidence shows supporting low-income women and their kids is the best way to reduce abortion. But some people do believe, I mean, you're, you're clearly disagreeing with them, but those people believe that there is virtue to some of these policies and those people are Christians. So what is going on in terms of the messages that people are hearing about the ways that, that politics and faith are combining? Uh, look, big megachurch pastors tell me, white evangelicals, I have these people for two hours a week. Fox News has them all week. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the the 1970s brought some deal-breaker issues to the fore as far as evangelicals were concerned. At the top of the list was abortion, and it remains contentious to this day. Evangelicals consistently name it as their prime issue and push back against campaigns to allow late-term abortion. The 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling by the US Supreme Court gave women a constitutional right to abortion, denying America's individual states the freedom to decide otherwise. And at every election since, the power of the president to nominate justices to the court has become a huge issue. 
Much of the white evangelical church is united on the issue of abortion, but this wasn't always the case. Tim Geegline. There's irony. The irony is that overwhelmingly, most evangelical Christians in 1973 in the United States, they viewed abortion as a Catholic issue, not as a so-called Protestant or evangelical issue. The Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest American Protestant denomination, uh, in a resolution after Roe against Wade in 1973 or 1974, actually had a convention resolution that said that abortion was acceptable. And now they are overwhelmingly in opposition. Abortion and the Supreme Court appointment became such a defining issue in the presidential race that some people argue Trump won over the white evangelical base on this alone. They certainly weren't getting any reassurances from Hillary Clinton, who ran on a determinedly pro-abortion ticket. In fact, they weren't getting very much from Hillary at all. Michael Weir worked on faith outreach for President Obama. For all of the attention that's been given on the 81% number, which is significant, uh, that's more than voted for George W. Bush both times, that's more than voted for Mitt Romney, more than voted for John McCain. Uh, it's important to note, though, the number that hasn't been discussed as much but should be is 16%. That's the percentage that voted for Hillary Clinton, which is abysmally, almost unfathomably low. Barack Obama won 26 or 27 percent in 2008. He won 23 percent in 2012 as the first major candidate to support gay marriage after the Catholic Church had accused him of a war on religion, and he still won 23 percent. Hillary Clinton won seven points less, which accounts for millions of votes. What's important for a British audience to understand, uh, white evangelicals account for over a quarter of the American electorate. And so we're talking about just a few percentage point flip is millions of votes. And Hillary Clinton's campaign, both in terms of her message, in terms of her staffing structure, and in terms of her issue positions, tried to win without them. And we saw what happens when you try to do that in America. It also seems a bit counterintuitive because Hillary identifies as Methodist, says that she prays, she has a devotional that she follows. Was she scared to identify publicly as being religious? Well, so that's been one of the most fascinating things. So I think Hillary Clinton is probably the most religiously literate Democratic nominee that we're likely to see ever in the, uh, for, for the future of American politics. She taught Sunday school. She's a lifelong Methodist, uh, given the demographic changes in America and, and the way the Democratic Party is structured now. It's not certain that we'll have someone that will be as religiously fluent. Uh, again, they did not pull on on those threads and her campaign didn't give religious people a sense that for all of the talk of stronger together, that that included them. Apparently one senior Clinton official told a reporter uh, that the Clinton campaign would run the first post-Christian campaign uh, in presidential politics. All the commentators we spoke to, on the left and the right, agreed that Hillary didn't prioritize the white evangelical audience. Ralph Reed. I think that the Democratic Party in the United States, the Democratic Party of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, they were strategically dismissive of the importance of these voters of faith because they believed they had a demographically ascendant coalition of women, minorities, 
and voters under the age of 30. The minority component being a dramatically increased turnout of African Americans and a rising tide as you look out over the decades of Hispanic voters. They were winning every one of those groups 60, 70, 80, 90%. And they effectively said voters that were conservative voters of faith, Roman Catholic or evangelical, did not matter. And they found out the hard way that it did matter. It mattered a lot. We went to find evangelical pro-Trump voters from around the country. They all said that they would never have voted for Hillary. She had lost their trust completely, if she ever had it. I asked Carrie Sims, a mother of three, if she would have voted for Clinton. Absolutely not. There's no way. She doesn't represent my values at all. Obviously, I'm a woman. Uh, I am a Christian woman. And um, her support of abortion, her support of... There's so many issues are, are absolutely do not represent me. Um, she absolutely lost my trust a, a long time ago. Her values and my values are, are not the same on, on any level. So, no way. <laughs> but for a group dedicated to voting with their values, there's a lot about President Trump which must be jarring. For many white evangelicals, the tension between their commitment to faithful marriage and Trump's track record with women is a problem. But there's a narrative about Trump as God's chosen man, despite his faults, which has emerged in the last year to help them make their peace with his presidency. As a Christian, we have to be discerning. Sometimes we have to make difficult choices between, you know, two people. And one of the things that I, I think it's really hard for people to understand outside the U.S. is a lot of Christians who voted for Trump you know, initially did not like him. Uh, initially, he was not their number one candidate. But as they prayed about it, there was a conviction. This is the man that God's chosen. And it was really kind of a miraculous metamorphosis of watching the Christian community who was initially cold to him begin to warm up and then not only, you know, become open to him, but to really come out in droves to support him. It's, I think if we really look at the facts of what happened, it was a miracle. It was truly a miracle that he won. And so um, can we explain it? We really can't, other than the fact that God moved on the hearts of people to vote for this man. Whether or not he was a miracle, he certainly seems to have been offering something new to voters. Scott Stanger is a 55-year-old finance director from Kansas City. I'm one of those who is very dissatisfied with the, the leadership of this nation, both in, in conservatives and liberals and independents. And uh, I think that it's time that we <laughs> take a chance on, on a completely different uh, strategy. So I saw this as, uh, as somebody who was willing to come in as an outsider and, and give us a, a new approach. Uh, as he said, drain the swamp. I'm, I'm definitely ready to have the swamp drained. His personal life has been very eventful, many marriages, many other relationships, often simultaneously. How do you feel about his moral character? Uh, there's no way I could defend his moral character. Uh, he's, uh, we knew what we were getting ahead of time. In the public sector, I'm, I'm disappointed at times with the way that he shows himself when he is in fact caught in, 
in some compromising position. I mean, obviously, the the tape that was released when the election was going on and some of the things, there's no way anybody could defend that. I mean, it's inexcusable, unacceptable. This tape was the inadvertently recorded exchange between Trump and TV presenter Billy Bush, recorded years previously but released just a month before the election. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. I have a daughter, and uh, I know that uh, she does not support Donald Trump because, because of some of the things he's, he said. There's no way that we could support that. And, and, and I have to sit there in front of my daughter and say, okay, yes, honey, I voted for this man, and it's not the way that I would want a man to treat another woman, whether it's my daughter or my wife or just any uh, stranger. So I can't defend his his morals at all. American exceptionalism is very much part of the culture here, and Trump appropriated it forcefully with his Make America Great Again mantra, simultaneously appealing to voters' aspirations for their nation and blaming the political elites for losing its greatness. In one fell swoop, he scooped up the flyover voters who had felt forgotten and even ignored by political leaders. But he added another layer for the white evangelicals, which is almost invisible to those outside the church, but very much hits the spot for those on the inside. Consistently using phrases like, we don't worship government, we worship God. He appealed to Christian believers who worry about government interference in their lives. If you're uncomfortable with same-sex marriage, it's not hard in the US to see social and legal shifts towards its acceptance as an attack on your beliefs. Trump's language gave those people a way into his camp. You might be unhappy with many aspects of his character, behaviour and leadership, but you can hold your nose and vote for him because he comes through on the Supreme Court appointment. It's similar to the experience of God's people, as described in the Bible's Old Testament, where rulers like Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus were the evil kings who kept God's people in captivity, but who sometimes came through for them. Making provision for their needs meant that God's people were offered some protection or freedom which might not otherwise have happened. But is Trump the evil king who comes through for God's people? We asked David French. Republican commentator at the National Review. The distinction, though, and the difference between, say, a Donald Trump and an evil biblical king is that God's people didn't put the evil biblical kings in power. Um, and here, evangelical Christians put Donald Trump in power. And so in, in the biblical times, there are the God's people are crying out to the evil king for mercy or crying out for justice, and occasionally they are heard. In this case, the Christians were crying out to put Donald Trump in office, and I think that's a very substantially different thing. If those Christians were crying out to put Trump in office, what does that say about the evangelical church? Are they more political than religious now? The term is becoming extraordinarily political, and it's not, its origin is not political at all. And so... As a Christian, my primary identity is not a political identity. My primary identity is my faith in Jesus Christ. And my love for human beings is not limited to love for people in my own political tribe. My love for human beings is an imitation of Jesus Christ. And so if I'm explaining who I am to people, and I use a term that for probably 60% of the United States right now 
immediately and primarily labels me politically, then I feel like it's inherently misleading. But Michael Weir thinks the politicisation of religion can pave the way for a much more reflective and socially aware church. I'm actually hopeful. I actually think that this political moment, this cultural moment, this religious moment is bringing to the surface uh, things that the church will work through and that will be better on the other end of it. I've been encouraged by the new voices I've seen. We're seeing an increase of, of female leadership. We're seeing evangelical pastors who thought that they could be quiet about politics. Now not becoming political activists, but understanding that their congregants need help connecting and drawing the line between what they teach on Sundays and issues of public importance and the way you live out your public life. And so I view this time as a tilling of the ground for which new things can rise to the surface. Jim Wallace, on the other hand, thinks it's a suicide battle for the church and that those who sign up to fight for Trump are signing away their integrity. Donald Trump is a threat to the integrity of this nation and the integrity of our faith. And those people who you've interviewed are going to be held accountable for their support of Donald Trump. The religious right is rising with Donald Trump. They've got lots of power. They get in the White House all the time. They've made their deal. They've made their transaction, and they're ignoring his behavior. They're ignoring his religious bigotry. They're, they're ignoring his attacks on Muslims. They're ignoring his racial bigotry. They're ignoring his treatment of women. They're ignoring his adulterous lifestyle. And those Christians are going to be held to account. They are creating, in my mind, let's call it a state church. A state church where Donald Trump is in control of what the church says. That's wrong. That's wrong. I went to the States slightly bemused. But when you're there and talking to people from across the religious and political spectrum, it's not hard to see what's happened. Almost everyone told me the same thing. White evangelicals are a substantial part of the voter base and formed 26% of the voting public in 2016. They're a big part of the flyover community, the vast swathes of the country which most decision-makers only see from the sky as they fly from one coast to the other between their important meetings with fellow elites. Millions and millions of people were feeling forgotten. And the white evangelicals resented the liberal mainstream who told them their views didn't count. So they made them count. They turned out in force and made their feelings known. Those feelings were very focused. They definitely didn't want Hillary Clinton. She was one of the elites and had held power in various ways for a long time. She wasn't the fresh start they were looking for. She wouldn't stop talking about access to abortion and she made no effort to meet them halfway on the issues. Or to meet them at all. She avoided churches on the trail and everything about her campaign told them she thought she could win without them. Her brand became toxic. The evangelical mobilisation which had begun in the 1970s came full circle in 2016. The sons and daughters of the 70s and 80s leaders of the white evangelical movement are now in the White House, in staff positions or as close advisers to the president. They found their guy. They didn't like him much and many of them struggled to stomach his rudeness, his treatment of minorities, refugees and women, not to mention his self-aggrandisement. But he said the things they wanted to hear. And a year in, he seems to be delivering on those promises. He's nominated a social conservative to the Supreme Court in Neil Gorsuch, made strong statements on immigration 
and promised to move the US Embassy in Israel to Jerusalem. I asked all the pro-Trump evangelicals I met whether they thought he was a man of God. No one said he was. But they see him as a man being used by God to fulfil a divine and slightly mysterious purpose, appointed, to use another scripture, for such a time as this. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this documentary. Please remember to subscribe to the Unheard Documentary via iTunes or your preferred podcast app. While you're there, subscribe to the weekly Unheard podcast. We'll be back soon with new documentaries from Douglas Murray and Juliet Samuel.